you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the first chapter of Exodus, Exodus chapter number one. Last week, I began a series in the book of Exodus. Don't know if I'm going to go all the way through the book or just hit a lot of the highlights of the book, uh, but Exodus chapter one is where we are this morning. That word Exodus, the name of the book means departure, and what a fitting name that is for this book where we read of the departure of God's people from their captivity, their bondage in Egypt. And the Exodus was the greatest act of redemption up until Calvary. And Exodus so points us to the redemption that we have come to experience in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Exodus chapter 1, and in a moment we'll read beginning with verse number 8. But I don't know about you, I often find it amazing at how quickly our circumstances can change in life. Have you ever experienced that? Maybe for the better, your experiences, uh, your circumstances suddenly change. Sometimes they change for the worse. Imagine what it must have been like for those Jews who were living in Germany in 1938. November 9th, 1938 was known as Kristallnacht which means night of broken glass. And it was a sudden assault on the Jews and their property by the Nazis in Germany prior to World War II. Now it's a significant event in history because it marks the very first widespread use of force against the Jews by Adolf Hitler. And it legitimized violence against Jews by the Nazis and was really a foretaste of what would come with Hitler's final solution leading all the way up to the Holocaust. Now, the pretext for the attack was the assassination of a German government official in the French embassy that was in Paris. Herschel Greenspan was a 17-year-old Jewish refugee who was living in Paris, and he recently learned that his parents had been deported by the Nazis. And so angered at the way they were treated by the Nazis, Greenspan decided to strike back, and so he entered the German embassy there in Paris and attempted to assassinate the German ambassador to France. However, he missed the ambassador and ended up killing Ernest von Rath, who was a German diplomat at the time and member of the Nazi party. And so after learning of the news, Hitler's regime ramped up their anti-Semitic propaganda Josef Goebbels, the Minister of Information for the Nazis, organized a pogrom against German Jews. And you know what a pogrom or pogrom is. It's an organized massacre that's directed toward uh, some ethnic group. Well, Nazi sympathizers took to the streets. Mobs across Germany destroyed more than 500 Germ uh, Jewish homes, synagogues, and storefronts. And when the violence ended, there were 90 Jews who had been murdered. Over 30,000 Jewish men had been taken into custody, forced into labor camps under Nazi control. And so many synagogues and storefront windows were smashed in Kristallnacht that it looked like crystals in the streets, hence the name Kristallnacht, Night of Broken Glass. And many historians point out how it was at this moment the circumstances for the Jews changed overnight uh, 
in Nazi-controlled Germany. It's amazing how circumstances can change like that. How the winds can shift and the tide of public opinion often ebbs and flows. Well, long before Hitler's final solution, there was Pharaoh's solution to the Hebrew problem. And we read about it right here in this first chapter of Exodus. Now, as the chapter begins, uh, the descendants of Jacob, 400 years prior to this point, they went into Egypt, numbering 70. Now, 400 years later, they are a nation in their own right, perhaps of 2 million people. The sons of Jacob quickly become the people of Israel. And so circumstances change where they once knew uh, a level of comfort in Egypt and carried political favor with Pharaoh. Notice that verse number 8 says that there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. And so God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. I want to speak from this subject this morning. Experience without explanation. Experience without explanation. Have you ever experienced a painful set of circumstances without ever being given an explanation why? You ever found yourself between a rock and a hard place and you had a hard time wondering just why exactly you were experiencing what you were in that particular moment? Maybe you prayed and asked God to show you, Lord, have I done something? Is there any reason why I'm experiencing this painful circumstance in my life? And yet, heaven remained silent. Well, here in this first chapter of Exodus, the people of Israel have painful experiences, and yet they're not given any explanations for it. In fact, we know back in chapter 46, 
God had, of, of Genesis, God had told Jacob to go ahead and take his family on down to Egypt. God would go with him. God would preserve his family. God would eventually bring them back up to the promised land. Uh, God had raised up one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, as, as essentially the prime minister of Egypt to provide for his family during a severe famine. And so the 70 uh, or so numbered family, they go down to Egypt, they're there, and by the time Genesis closes and Exodus begins, there are some 400 long years that pass. And during those centuries, the circumstances change for the people of Israel, where they had experienced favor, well, now they have fallen out of favor. Uh, where they had experienced the blessing of the land of Goshen, well, now, uh, here in Exodus chapter 1, they're forced into slavery. And when slavery doesn't keep the people from multiplying, Pharaoh switches tactics, and he has murder on the mind. Uh, he determines to wipe out their sons. And so things go from bad to worse for the people of Israel here in this first chapter of Exodus. So circumstances can change overnight. Now, again, the story of the Jewish nation is loaded with painful circumstances. And it shouldn't be a surprise to us why this is the case. God made a promise to bring blessing to the world through Abraham's descendants, and that's a promise that ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And so the enemy has long fought against that promise because it spells his own disaster. So he tries to maintain his grip on the world. He tries to maintain his grip on the souls of people. And that's why the followers of Jesus are uncomfortable in the world. Uh, we've come to inherit those blessings that were promised through, Abraham, through Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus in John chapter 16 told his disciples that in the world you can expect tribulation. Uh, you ought to be able to expect painful experiences in the world uh, as my followers. But Jesus said, be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. In John 17, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus prayed this way for his disciples. Uh, I have given them your word, Father, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now listen to this. Then he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. Now pay attention to that. It's not God's design to remove us as his children from all painful experiences while in this world. Painful experiences will often come our way in this life, and we won't have any explanations often as to why they do. However, we have been given something far better than explanations We've been given some precious promises to live by. And these promises are what we can hold on to whenever the way grows dark, whenever the storm clouds seem to begin to build on the horizon, God will remember his promise. And that's something that we learn from this first chapter of Exodus. So notice a few things here from these verses. Number one, notice with me how history comes full circle as God fulfills his promises. Uh, you go back up and you look at the first seven verses of the chapter. You read the chapter in its entirety. You'll know that Exodus 1 marks a dark moment in the history of Jacob's family. They now find themselves in bondage. They're under a heavy burden. They're experiencing oppression. And we know that things didn't initially start out that way for them in Egypt. 
But four centuries have passed between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. And, and God had honored his promise to make Abraham into a great nation. And what started as a small band of Hebrew shepherds living in Goshen now grew into a nation of people. Now, the fact that they were shepherds, these sons of Jacob, that might serve as a clue as to why they were viewed with such contempt by the Egyptians. Now, four centuries before the events of Exodus chapter 1, the Bible says that Joseph had warned his brothers about something very specific to Egyptian culture. You might even miss it if you're reading through the Bible because it's a very small detail in the story, but I believe it's a very important detail. If you flip back to Genesis chapter 46 for just a second, uh, we read that Joseph sort of gave his brothers a heads up about the culture in Egypt. Remember Jacob and his sons, his, their family, they're coming down to Egypt. Joseph is going to settle them into the best of the land, the land of Goshen. But he wants them to know something about Egyptian culture before they get there. And so he gives them this heads up about uh, sort of a cultural taboo to the Egyptians. Verse 33, Genesis 46, when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth until now. In other words, he goes on and says, every shepherd is an abomination to Egyptians. So when Pharaoh asks you what you do, don't tell him that you're shepherds, but keep it generic. Tell him that you're in the livestock business. Uh, tell him that you're, you're keepers of livestock, that kind of thing. Uh, one commentator has said, at this particular time, Egyptian culture had risen to its high watermark. And so the residents of Egypt were expected to display this certain level of sophistication. In Egyptian culture, you had, you had hieroglyphics, you had fine universities, you had a great economic situation. At this particular point in time, Egypt was the powerhouse of the world. And so all of that going in Egypt's favor sort of made them look suspiciously at any group of refugees who might corrupt their own good fortunes. And so they certainly didn't want to import this group of lowly shepherds who could tarnish their nation's high-gloss image. Best way I could describe it is this way. Here you have a very cosmopolitan society there in Egypt, and here you've got these shepherds from the hills bunch of good old boys, blue-collar workers, hillbillies who may, in fact, be frowned upon by the sophisticates of finer culture in Egypt. And so Joseph says, guys, let me tell you, don't tell him that you're shepherds. Well, what do they do? You look at Genesis 47. Uh, the text says Joseph takes five of his brothers to meet Pharaoh, who then asks them, what is your occupation? And they say, we're shepherds. So much for incognito. And so it becomes part of the initial prejudice held against these Israelites, which only builds with time. And eventually the attitude is going to be this. Something has got to be done about these shepherds. Something has got to be done about this group of people. And so time passes, the people multiply, Go through Exodus chapter 1 and underline the number of times you see that word multiply. 
despite the circumstances, despite the experiences of God's people here in Exodus chapter 1, God is fulfilling his promise as history comes full circle. The sons of Israel, they're now the people of Israel. It's evidence of the blessing of God. What had been just a family of shepherds has now become a nation of shepherds. And it's just one more piece of evidence that God is keeping his promises that he made to Abraham all of those centuries prior. Aren't you grateful that time does not diminish the promises of God? With the passing of time, even though circumstances change, even though the winds of culture begin to change direction, and we can find ourselves experiencing difficulty, I'm glad that time does not diminish the promises of God. God is always faithful to honor his word. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Isaiah 55, God says, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty or void, but it will accomplish that which I purpose, and it will succeed in the thing for which I send it. So yeah, it's been 400 years, but God had not forgotten his word. Time had passed along, but God had not forgotten his promise. And that's, listen, that's why you can have confidence in the word of God. In the midst of a culture that's constantly changing its opinions about what's right and what's wrong, thank God that we can plant our feet upon the solid bedrock of the Word of God. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Do you have confidence that this book is the Word of God? Kind of reminds me of a story I heard that W.A. Criswell used to tell about two mischievous boys who early one Sunday morning, they got a hold of the preacher's Bible and they glued some of the pages together. So the preacher got up that morning to preach. As he opened up his Bible, he he read from his text, and in those days, Noah took unto himself a wife. And then he turned what he thought was one page, and he continued to read, and she was... 15 cubits broad, (laughs) 35 cubits long, made out of gopher wood and topped on the inside with pitch. He looked up at his congregation and he held up his Bible and he said, Beloved, that's the first time I ever read that in the Word of God. But if the Word of God says it, I believe it. Listen, you can have confidence in the Word of God. History comes full circle as God always honors His promises. He's standing over His Word to perform it. Now, there's a second thing in this passage that I want you to notice, and it's this. Hardship comes even to those in the family of faith. History comes full circle as God honors His Word, but... Hardship comes to those who are members of the family of faith. And so pay attention to this detail in verse number 8, that there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. It wasn't that he was so much ignorant of history, it's that he just didn't really care about the history. What Joseph did 
to preserve life in Egypt as well as his own family. This, this didn't matter to this new Pharaoh. And so whereas a former generation was held in high esteem by the Egyptians, now you've got a new king in power who's looking at the Hebrews with suspicion. He doesn't see them as being a blessing to Egyptian culture. He doesn't see them as being a blessing to the land. No, he sees them as sort of being a, a problem, a threat to his own power. And so what does he do? Well, he ramps up the propaganda machine and convinces his own nation that these, these Israelites represent an existential threat to Egypt. And so the sons of Jacob the nation of Israel, they're forced into slavery. So hardship comes their way. Now all along, you go all the way back to Genesis 46, God had promised Jacob, go on down to Egypt, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. That's God's promise. Genesis 50, verse 24, says that Joseph, on his own deathbed, says to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 25 of that text says that Joseph made his brothers swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Don't leave my bones here in Egypt. Why? Because Egypt wasn't home. Even though the family had been there 400 years, the sons of Israel were always strangers living in a foreign land. Even though there was a time when it got pretty comfortable living in Egypt, living off the best of the land in Goshen. It got pretty comfortable for a few generations, but circumstances can change. The winds can shift direction. A new king comes into power who introduces misery and hardship into the lives of God's people. But it's all a reminder that they weren't home yet. Now, can I just make some application here for just a second? You know, these last many long decades in Western civilization, the church has known somewhat of a comfortable position in the West where for the most part Christianity had given rise to so much of what Western civilization values. So for a long time cultural values and Judeo-Christian values were often one and the same. But the winds have shifted direction, haven't they folks? We're now living in a post-Christian West. We're now what the culture around us values is different than what we value as people of faith, those who stand upon the unchanging word of God. So we shouldn't be surprised whenever we begin to experience hardship for the sake of our faith by a culture that's lost. And it ought to be a reminder to us that we're not home yet. We're pilgrims. We're strangers living in a foreign land. So where you had this former generation held in a place of honor, they're now held in disgrace. Where they had once been a protected people with a certain measure of political connections, now they're slaves and outcast in Egyptian society. And their experience now was one of pain and hardship. Things became uncomfortable. So this propaganda machine then gets ramped up against the, the, the people of Israel. The people are too mighty. They're too many. 
Let's do something about it. These Hebrews are a threat to our own Egyptian way of life, and if we don't do something about it, they'll soon outnumber us. And so for Pharaoh, it meant enslaving these Israelites and subjecting them to the harsh reality of forced labor. And so now their spirits were crushed. Their backs were bent over with heavy burdens. And as a bonus, Pharaoh says, hey, we'll get some new cities built as a result of it. Verse 11, they set taskmasters over these Israelites to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built store cities for Pharaoh, Python, Ramses. And then verse 13 and 14 shows how things go from bad to worse. They ruthlessly made the people work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. In mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So there's this sense of repetition there in verses 13 and 14. Some form of the Hebrew word avad or avodah is used no less than seven or eight times. If you were reading this in English, the same word, it would, it would just have this sense of repetition. And yet the intention of the biblical writer here is to sort of present you with this sense of affliction that the Israelites are now experiencing. One language scholar says that it's almost as if each use of the word was like one more blow from the slave driver's whip. Painful circumstances. Difficult experiences. You know, it was 100 years ago this month that Howard Carter and his uh, team of British archaeologists discovered the tomb of King Tut in Lower Egypt. There in the Valley of the Kings, You've got various hieroglyphs and artistic depictions were discovered there uh, in his tomb. Well, not far from the tomb of King Tut is another tomb known as the tomb of the tomb of Rechmeyer. And evidently, Rechmeyer had been a high-ranking official under King Tut. And on the northwestern wall of the tomb, you can find a depiction of slave labor from about this same time period. In fact, I've got a picture of it. If you'll look at the screen, you can see that. That's what was on the northwestern wall in the tomb of Rechmeyer. And it sort of gives you the idea of just this cruel oppression with which slaves were held there in Egypt. So it's, in many ways, it's an open window into the experience of these Israelites here in Exodus chapter 1. But you see, in dealing with God's people in this way, Pharaoh was in effect, striking blow after blow after blow upon the God of Israel. This was ultimately a spiritual conflict as Pharaoh positions himself to fight against God. And when you position yourself to fight against God, you know you can't win that fight. Amen. No dictator, no regime, no nation can ever position itself as an enemy of God and win that fight. Now, I want to show you something. The very thing that Pharaoh does not want is what happens. The people have been multiplying there in the land. Verse 10, Pharaoh says, let's deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. He ramps up the oppression. Now, look at verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. The harder the way got for the people, the more they spread abroad so that the, the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Men and women, you will not thwart the purposes of Almighty God. 
become evil men or devils, the church triumphant will march on. Can I just say that this morning? You see it in the book of Acts, where the church is there in the city of Jerusalem, 3,000 in number, there on the day of Pentecost. Jesus had told his small band of disciples in Acts 1-8, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. Well, that doesn't happen as long as the church is comfortable, cozy there in Jerusalem. So what happens? Acts chapter 8, verse 1, a wave of persecution is unleashed against the Jerusalem church so that believers are scattered out from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, and everywhere they go, they scatter the seed of the Word of God, and guess what happens? They multiply. Tertullian said it was the blood of the martyr. That's the seed of the church. So the very thing that the enemy is intending to be the demise of the people of Israel, God is using to bring them to a particular state of readiness for redemption's sake. Now, i got more I could say about that, but I've got to move on. So God is working behind the scenes of history. History's come full circle. God is honoring his promise. Hardship is something that the people of God need to expect. And then notice the third thing. Notice how help comes often from unexpected places. So whenever the slave labor didn't solve the problem and the people began to multiply, still, Pharaoh says, here's what we need to do. He, he calls the midwives. And two in particular, they're named Shipra and Pua. And his plans move to the murderess. He says, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. If it's a daughter, she shall live. So let me tell you, I may not have an explanation for every painful experience in life, but I can rest assured I'm never alone. God is working out the details of his plan, and he often does so in unexpected ways and through unexpected means. Have you ever paid attention to that when you've read through Scripture, how God always tends to work in unexpected ways, uses unexpected people to accomplish unlikely things for his name's sake? Here we've got two ladies named Shipra and Pua. There's not a whole lot said about them in Scripture, but what is said about them is, is absolutely wonderful. Here you have the most powerful man in the land, he, he trains his guns on the most helpless of society. It's a contrast in character, and yet there are these unlikely heroes in the story in this pair of midwives who serve as the first pro-life activist in Scripture. Wow. Their names are Shipra and Pua. Shipra, her name means beautiful. Pua, her name means splendid. And let me tell you, they live up to their name because they do a beautiful, splendid thing in obeying God despite the consequences. What's their directive? Well, Pharaoh says, this is what you need to do when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool. And in my mind, I don't even want to know what that involved and what that was. You see these dads that now they go into the delivery room with their wives and they've got their phone and, you know, they're eating a... Subway sandwich, and it's just a great thing. And That wasn't my experience when my children were born. I'll be honest. You know, Anita had anesthesia. I think I needed some of that too. And the, 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 but 
but these women are given this directive, if it's a son, snuff him out. As soon as he's born, as soon as you can tell what gender he, snuff him out. If it's a little girl, let her live. It's a culture of death, isn't it? You know a society's about to head off the cliff when it celebrates death and not life. So his orders to these midwives are clear and callous. Pharaoh sets himself up as an enemy of life. He's usurping a role that belongs to God alone, despising the revealed will of God reflected in the creation mandate. What is that will? God tells Adam and Eve, here's what I want you to do. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth with image bearers. God loves life. Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. The enemy, he comes to kill. He comes to steal. He comes to destroy. But Jesus says, I've come that you might have life. We ought to be champions of life, men and women, in a culture of death that doesn't know any better because of the evil one. Thank God for some shippers and puas. Thank God for some beautiful, splendid people who stand for what's right, even when it's not politically correct, even when it's not culturally popular. They stand for the will of God. They fear God and not the king. And may their tribe increase. May their tribe increase. So Pharaoh becomes this type of antichrist by opposing the plan of God to send a Savior into the world. Because in the shadows... The serpent is launching his attack against the seed of the woman who was promised to come and bring deliverance. Genesis 3.15, God decreed that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to us that the seed of the serpent is trying to destroy the seed of the woman. It's part of Satan's long war against God. And so whether he knew it or not, Pharaoh is the seed of the serpent that God said would strike at the heel of the woman's seed. His murderous intentions is the enemy's attempt through him to undermine the redemptive plan of God. And so in this way, Pharaoh really anticipates all of the antichrists that would come in history. Wherever there's a culture of death, Satan is there trying to destroy the work of God. But he is defeated He does not stop the birth of these Hebrew sons because God has some help that comes from some unexpected places for the people of Israel named Shipra and Pua who recognize that it's better to obey God than the sinful dictates of man. And so in an act of civil disobedience, they stand for life. You say, when is it ever appropriate to obey or disobey the government of man? Whenever man usurps the role of God and tells us to do what God tells us not to do. And we're not to be contentious about it, ugly about it, but in faith we stand upon what's right and what's true. And so these ladies, they fear God and not the king. Now, the problem didn't end there for Israel because Pharaoh's murderous intentions can be further seen in his next directive down in verse 22. Every son that's born to the Hebrews, cast him into the Nile River. 
but let every daughter live. Now watch this, because it's going to be the daughters that will prove to be Pharaoh's undoing, beginning with his own daughter. Because the time will come when his own daughter goes down to the Nile River and she sees a little Hebrew baby in a basket. And she has pity on this precious child. And she doesn't share the same murderous, evil heart that her father has. And she draws this baby from the water and names him Moses. So Pharaoh's own daughter becomes a mother figure of the deliverer that God has sent to lead his people out of their bondage in Egypt. Listen, history comes full circle as God honors his promises. Hardship needs to be expected for the family of faith because we're not home yet. We're living in a world ultimately that's under the control of the evil one. But we can be of good cheer. Jesus says, I've overcome the world. Amen. And help comes from unexpected places. Amen. Because many centuries from this particular point in history, there's going to be another baby who's born. He's not going to be born in Rome. He's not going to make his way into this world through the palace of Caesar Augustus, but he's going to come into this world via a virgin womb, born in a stable in Bethlehem of all places. Help comes from unexpected places because the salvation of humanity will rest with the birth of a baby. You ought to just shout right there. So there's an analogy here to the life of the soul. Pharaoh has two strategies for preventing the people of God from growing, slavery and death. You know, it's the same strategy that the enemy wants to keep people in bondage to to this very day. He wants to keep them in slavery to sin so that he can bring death. The wages of sin is death. And what we need, men and women, is exactly what the Israelites needed. We need a Savior to deliver us from slavery and rescue us from death by destroying our enemy. And that's what Jesus did for us through his own death and resurrection. And glory be to his name. Would you stand with me for prayer? Just like the people of Israel here, maybe this morning you find yourself in the midst of a painful experience without any explanation why. For Israel, it involved oppression and slavery. Their children marked for slaughter. But God had promised that the deliverer is coming. In hard times, they never erase the promises of God. Time does not diminish the promises of God, and that's something you can be confident in. Even when you don't have an explanation for your experience, God's given you something far better. He's given you a promise. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Regardless of the experience you may be facing, my friend, listen, it can never erase the promise of God to you in Jesus Christ. Do you know that? Are you encouraged by that thought? This may have been a difficult year for you and your family. You may sense storm clouds building on your horizon, and you wonder, where is God in it all? My friend, he's in the same place he's always been. He's right there at your side, and he gives you this promise that he will never leave you, he will never forsake you, not for a split second has he ever stopped loving you, 
caring for you or providing for you. And he sealed that promise in his own blood. Lord, in Jesus' name, we're so thankful for the redemption that's ours through the price that Jesus has paid for us through his own death on the cross as our one and only sacrifice from sin. Lord, life in a fallen world gets difficult for the children of faith. But as your providence would have it, Lord, you have so ordained it to be this way so that we never get too comfortable as things currently stand. Lord, use the painful experiences of life to remind us that we're not home yet. To remind us of our need for a Redeemer. To look to Jesus in whom we place all of our hope and all of our faith and all of our confidence. God, for the man, the woman, the student who may be faced with some painful ordeal this morning, Lord, my prayer is that they look to you in faith. Even when they don't have an explanation, Lord, you've given them something far better. You've given them precious promises. You've given them your own son. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.